you know, there's all these trails in the woods and then the, the swamp is really beautiful in the morning. Just a lot of birds and bird song. That has been one of the things that's sort of been saving my sanity during this time. Just either being outside or looking outside. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Let's head outside. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily Kagan Trenchard. And I'm Jay Erickson. The isolation of the last few months have left a lot of us starving for connection. In a digital world where I'm more connected than ever, where my inbox is threatening to drown me in messages, why do I feel our threads of attachment are wearing thin? Even before the pandemic, the CDC was warning that a third of adults over 45 feel socially isolated. And that isolation increases the risk of death from things like heart disease and dementia by 50%. We reached out to Dr. Julie Holland, a psychiatrist and psychopharmacologist, to talk about her new book, Good Chemistry, The Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics. You may know of Julie from her other books, Weekends at Bellevue, about her nine years on the night shift at the psychiatric emergency ward, or Moody Bitches, the truth about the drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy. She spent a lot of time understanding what pulls our brains away from a shared reality and what helps bring them back to reconnect. Jay got a chance to hike with Julie up in the woods behind her house earlier this summer while I tagged along remotely from my apartment in Brooklyn. Welcome to Wild Talk, Julie. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Jay and Emily, for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. First of all, you know, can you kind of just describe where we are and why we're here? So we are, we are in my woods behind, behind uh, our house. Uh, my husband, Jeremy, and I, we, uh, back in uh, 99, we bought a house that had uh, 12 acres behind it, and we cleared trails and uh, eventually uh, our friend Richard built us a cabin back here. So Jay and I are, are physically distancing. We are sitting on two different moss-covered rocks um, and actually the rock that I'm sitting on has two rocks on top of it. We, um, a, big a big rock and a little rock and they sort of lean up against each other and it may seem like if you took the little rock away the big rock would be fine but the, they're actually, the way they're propped up uh, they hold each other up, these two rocks and if you move either one of them the other one falls and uh, Jeremy and I just had our 21st wedding anniversary and we came out here to play some music and hang out uh, and we ended up having a big argument, actually, and so now we call this anniversary rock. Um, but what that's but that's one of the things that we do is we have heated discussions and we come to some sort of understanding and agreement, and we stay we stay together. And staying is a, a big theme of this uh, this book that I have that's coming out next month in June. Good chemistry, and it's this, this idea that we very easily sort of run away from ourselves and from situations, and the hard work is really staying. It's uh, staying present, and you know, not flipping on your phone to see what's going on on Twitter. And it's also staying, staying in a relationship even when it gets challenging, and you see things about yourself or your partner that you don't like. 
That's great. I love that point about the the sort of tension that a partnership requires, right? Um, whether that's to push against each other, to balance, to to ask of more from each other, or or to hold each other up. Um, and I think it's it's really interesting also when you think about that. It's not just staying present with your partner that is asked of us, but you know, so much of your work talks about. Um, how your your own internal mental chemistry <laughs> might be making you check out from yourself, let alone from others. Um, so I'm, w- I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, about the, the 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 ways we need to sort of think about our own interiority, our own worlds, uh, what that does to open us up to others, and you know, especially in these very strange and socially isolating times, what what can that sort of dynamic between our interior worlds and and the relationship to the others around us? you know, help us to think about as we try and live a little bit more fully in these times. So, you know, one of the ways that, um, that, that the, this book, Good Chemistry, is designed is that the chapters sort of, each one builds on the other, and, and the first chapter is about making connections with yourself, and the second chapter is about making connections with a partner, and the third is about spreading out to family, and then community, and then connecting with nature, and then the final chapter is about connecting with the cosmos and, and with death, uh, and just, you know, learning to just sort of become pure energy. So, um, and, and each one has its challenges, right? But the, but the first chapter really is about connecting with the self, and, and the first step in sort of, you know, staying and staying present is, is really to stay in our bodies and to become embodied. And, you know, when we're on our phones or our laptops or whatever, watching something or just, it's, it's easy to sort of, to, to leave, you know, to become disembodied and, uh, you know, you're, if nothing else, your posture sort of suffers from this kind of thing where you become less aware of where you physically are. Um, and so in, in Good Chemistry, I talk a lot about how to, how to get, you know, how to get back in your body and how to get back in the present sort of, uh, the present moment and how important that is. You know, we, we talk a lot in, in medicine or in psychiatry, you know, we'll sort of say things like yoga and meditation. And it's almost like this throwaway thing, like, you know, yeah, you'll do yoga meditation, you know, and, and, and you'll also take these medicines and you'll, and you'll have psychotherapy. Um, but, um, you know, it's not a throwaway. It's like, it's the most basic sort of building blocks to being, um, centered and embodied is that you are mindful and you do try to practice meditation and you try to practice yoga so that you can just get more comfortable inhabiting your own body. And until you are really, uh, present and whole and connected to yourself, you're not going to be much good. Um, in a relationship. And the only other thing I would say, uh, is the, um, this book was written before the pandemic. And one of the things that I talk about throughout the book is that getting your connections through your phone and through your laptop, it's not real. It's artificial. It's synthetic. It's not what your body needs. Um, and yet now, you know, it, it is how we are, uh, getting a lot of our sustenance and, and how we are getting our connections. And, and we have to sort of settle for this, uh, synthetic artificial connection and and it and it can feel pretty real but it's obviously pales in comparison to you know skin to skin contact and eye contact and holding hands and hugging and cuddling and so a lot of the things i recommend in good chemistry now i feel like there has to be a little caveat like you know if it is physically safe for you to do these things please do 
Um, but we are all now relying more, you know, on our devices to stay connected than ever before. So it's kind of funny to come out with a book, which is all about, uh, you know, put down, put down your devices. They won't, they won't nourish you. It's almost sort of like this natural experiment to say, okay, well, well, how much, uh, of a relationship actually does come through, through technology, because it's all we've got these days, right? I was talking to a patient yesterday. I, I, I did a bunch of phone sessions with my patients yesterday, and I was talking to one woman, and she told me um, that it had, been six, uh, it had been eight weeks, and she had had no physical touch, no human touch for eight weeks. And I was thinking, you know, mm-hmm. you mentioned, like, sort of experiment. And, uh, you know, I, you can't help but sort of think about the, you know, the, the old experiments with Harlow where he, he made these mother monkeys that were just made out of wire and then other ones that were made out of cloth and but the wire ones had the food and the baby monkeys would like go to the wire ones for for the nourishment but as soon as the the bottle was empty they would go to the cloth ones just for touch and and for comfort um and we you know Mm. we we are really built for touch and for and for you know being arm in arm and hand in hand and 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 smelling each other um and uh it's it's real. It saddens me to think about how many people aren't getting what they need. You know, we talk. I mean, it, it's sort of obvious that that um, the first responders and the people on the on the front lines, um, you know, in medicine, yes, they're going to be traumatized. They certainly are going to have PTSD, and they're going through a trauma. You know, even as we're sitting here in the woods and it's quiet, there are people who are being acutely traumatized. But uh, all, all of us who are physically distancing are sort of being uh, subacutely or chronically traumatized um, by not uh, availing ourselves of sort of you know the healing power of of touch, um, and it's gonna mm. it's definitely gonna take its toll. Mm. Um. Can I ask, so I, I, I love this widening aperture that your book has, that structure, that's starting with the self and, you know, kind of zooming all the way out to the, the cosmos. And my own experience of the last couple months, I, I've sort of found in the absence of human community, you know, beyond my family um, or and maybe some anemic Zoom connection, uh, but in the absence of that, I found I'm much more plugged into the non-human community, you know, is... Is that enough? Can that be a, a substitute? I really, I, I was talking to this patient because she's quarantining alone and um, and she has a dog, which I think is one of the things that is really saving her. And I was encouraging her to like go ahead and have like extended moments of eye contact with the dog. And like the dog is nature. Um, you know, my patients in the city, I, I have, uh, for years and years, I've been encouraging my patients to go outside and find, you know, grass and trees and chirping birds and butterflies because it will make them feel better and it, it will improve their mood and it will quell their anxiety. So I'm always kind of bugging my patients that, you know, nature is therapy. Um, and definitely now more than ever, uh, there are people who, you know, they know that they can't uh, be with a bunch of their friends, but that they could go for a hike. So... Uh, so, I mean, the problem is, you know, there's so many people going to these small trails that it's really impossible to physically distance appropriately. But, 
yes, nature can can feed you and soothe you and help you to feel connected. And, um, you know, I have to, uh, like full disclosure, Good Chemistry talks quite a bit about um, certain uh, mind-altering plant medicines that can help you to feel very connected with nature. So I talk about cannabis and I talk about ayahuasca, psilocybin. There's all sorts of um, classical psychedelics um, that can help you feel sort of more connected with the cosmos or more connected with nature. Um, but it is therapeutic. You know, the, this forest bathing, which is what the Japanese call it, like there really is data to show that being in nature or forest bathing um, does help anxiety, does help depression, um, can, can work nearly as well as antidepressants in and patient populations that are mildly to moderately depressed. You know, we get out in the woods as much as we can, and I'm, I really, I would like to take this moment to acknowledge my privilege. I understand that a lot of people can't uh, get out into the woods and into nature, and we're really fortunate to, to live not only near woods, but near this beautiful swamp um, and a lake. And um, I find water incredibly soothing and therapeutic. At what point does that, does that become part of standard clinical care. I mean, you know, it's not a drug. Nobody can make money off of it. Um, is it, okay, prescribed, you know, one forest bathing uh, per day and totally. they check up on their adherence? And, yeah. I mean, if it has that, if it's that efficacious, why wouldn't you? Absolutely. There was, there was, I mean, in, in Moody Bitches, I, I wrote uh, quite a bit about this, that, that there, there were some studies. I mean, there was something down in, I feel like it was around Austin, Texas, where they had doctors actually prescribe um, walking down by the waterfront and, you know, you're going to walk, you know, three days a week for 30 minutes at a time and showed that people got better. And I also saw a really interesting study recently about um, singing, singing for 10 minutes a day, mm. every day. And after several weeks of singing 10 minutes a day, every day, that, that people's anxiety and depression was significantly less than, than the group that didn't do this. So, um, you know, one of the things about singing is that it puts you in the parasympathetic mode. And I want to talk a little bit about parasympathetic because I think a lot of people don't really know what it is. But good chemistry explains this redundantly, I would say, because it's so important. You know, everybody has heard of fight or flight. And, you know, from middle, I think like from middle school to medical school, I probably was taught fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system like a dozen times. But what they don't teach you, what they don't talk about is the flip side of the sympathetic nervous system, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system. So sympathetic is fight or flight, and parasympathetic, uh, in medical school, they called it rest and digest, or rest, digest, and repair. It's actually the only time that your body runs any sort of like self-repairing protocol. Um, so if you're in fight or flight, I mean, it makes sense, right? If you're, you know, if you're being chased by a tiger, uh, it's not the time that your cells are gonna repair themselves. It's only when you're, when you're resting um, where you can sleep and digest and where your immune system works properly and that's where your body can repair itself. So in this state, which is a parasympathetic state, that's also the only time that you're open to creating connections, trusting, bonding with people, right? If you're in fight or flight, you're very suspicious. You know, you're not, you're not there to make friends. You know, you're either going to attack somebody or run away from them. So the parasympathetic is when you have tend and befriend or, or what I call connect and protect where you're creating connections and you're sort of uh, protecting the people that you consider to be um, in your tribe. So good chemistry talks a lot about how to get into the parasympathetic mode because that's what's healthiest. And 
mindfulness, meditation, yoga, they all get you in parasympathetic. And so does walking in the woods. And so does singing. Anytime you're exhaling longer than you're inhaling, you're putting yourself in parasympathetic. It's fascinating because I was actually curious, you know, what is that connection between the woods and singing? Um, you know, I, I think of singing as being physiological, but, you know, I'm standing in the woods. Is it is it any woods? Is it just those trees? So that's interesting. So is it is it a... The, the calming sensibility is, do you think it's more connected to the sort of the, the humbling effect that nature can have on us? Yes. You know, I, yeah. I'm curious. Let's talk about, yeah, let's what, talk, talk about, about humbling. <laughs> so, um, and this actually brings, brings psychedelics in, into the talk a little bit and also meditation. So, you know, one of the things that keeps people anxious or depressed is that they start to ruminate and rethink and think and think and rethink and reassess. How am I? Am I safe? What's going to happen tomorrow? Will I be safe tomorrow? What happened yesterday? Did I make myself unsafe by what I did yesterday? And it's just this constant sort of self-absorbed inventory. And um, the neural circuitry that underlies this kind of ruminative thinking is called the default mode network. And there's all sorts of things that can quiet the default mode network that can as I like to say, get your head out of your ass. They can get you <laughs> to be like less self-absorbed and more feeling like you're part of something bigger than just you, right? There's, there's more things to worry about than just you and how you're looking to your friends. So when you're out in the woods and you, you, know, you are among the trees and the grass and the sky and you start to sort of remember like I am, a, I am an animal in the woods and there's other animals in the woods and... Uh, there's other woods around the planet and there are other planets in the solar system and, and there's other solar systems in the universe. And like you can start to get a sense of, of awe that there are things bigger than you and that you're part of something bigger than you. And when you're in that place of awe, your default mode network is quieted. So the other thing that quiets the default mode network is um, meditation and psychedelics. So, there, or also being in a state of flow, right? Like, let's say you just get really absorbed in a project or, you know, you're making art or you're, or you're riding a bicycle or anything, but you just, you forget yourself, you know, you, you, you become so immersed in what you're doing that, you're, that your sense of self falls away. That is also a time when you're quieting the default mode network. So awe, flow, meditation, psychedelics, um, there's all sorts of things that just sort of get your get your mind off yourself basically what is it about that it, that space that parasympathetic space that not only allows healing but allows growth that allows you to learn well oxytocin enables neuroplasticity is the short answer right so when you you know if you're in fight or flight the the main hormones are cortisol and adrenaline so cortisol, um, you know, it's a steroid. So it basically suppresses the immune system and suppresses the immune response. And then adrenaline, you know, it speeds up your breathing and um, shunts blood away from your stomach where a digestion might have happened and uh, out into your muscles. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of things that happen physiologically when you are in this sort of uh, anxious fight or flight state. And the, the main hormone in the parasympathetic rest and digest and repair is oxytocin. And oxytocin is what allows you to create partnerships, to tend and befriend, to trust uh, and to bond. And then um, oxytocin feels really good. It's very pleasurable. And, and one of the ways that it works, uh, one of the ways that oxytocin makes 
social behavior so pleasurable is actually through the endocannabinoid system. So it's through the body's own internal cannabis-like molecules. And even if you've never hmm. smoked pot in your life, you have, you have cannabis-like molecules coursing through your body head to toe. Uh, there's one drug I didn't mention that I feel obligated to. Um, I'm, I'm the medical monitor for, for research looking at whether MDMA-assisted psychotherapy can help to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and for those of you listening mm. who don't know what MDMA is, it's, it's better known as the drug ecstasy, or some people call it molly. Uh, it's methylene dioxymethamphetamine, and it's been around for decades, and it's been used as an adjunct during psychotherapy to make therapy uh, sort of quicker, more efficient, more effective. It's a catalyst, basically. Um, and so I'm involved in those studies. They're, at this point, they're multi-center trials because we're, we're in phase three trials now. The FDA has fast-tracked MDMA as a potential breakthrough therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so I talk about MDMA therapy and about the effects of MDMA um, in good chemistry. And one of the reasons um, that I'm interested in MDMA, although there are many. It was uh, the first book that I ever edited was a book called Ecstasy, The Complete Guide. But one of the things about MDMA that's unique is that it is a huge uh, releaser of oxytocin. That oxytocin levels go up tremendously when you take MDMA. And so one of the effects that some people notice when they take uh, ecstasy is that they can feel very um, trusting and bonded and open and connected to somebody. And uh, oxytocin quiets the amygdala, which is the brain's fear center. So one of the things that happens in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is that people can, uh, they're much less fearful about talking about trauma. They're, they're less sort of defended, basically. It's easier uh, to get to the stuff that you really need to get to and talk about it and sort of dissect it. There was just a suicide recently of a, of a New York City emergency room uh, physician and you know people forget that that post-traumatic stress disorder is potentially uh, a, a lethal illness or a life-threatening illness because there is a high rate of suicide among people who've got PTSD and I think the other thing we're going to be seeing from first responders and and the medical front line is um, increased uh, substance use and alcoholism and and things of that nature that yeah. um, you know if uh, when people are in psychic pain, they will sometimes uh, anesthetize themselves as as best they can uh, and continue to expose themselves to the trauma. I'd like to p pick on that a little bit more because, um, you know, I, I, I work in healthcare, and one of the statistics that's always terrified me is that, that physicians already have some of the highest suicide right. rates of any profession, and that's yeah. before this crisis. Well, I you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the psyche of a doctor being one. Uh, I was trying to explain this to somebody recently, which is like, you know, we, we're not usually wrong. You know, like my whole life, I got hundreds on tests or 104 or 105 because it wasn't enough to get everything right. I also wanted like extra credit, you know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, got into the schools I wanted to and got good grades. And, you know, like people who end up being doctors, uh, we were told that we're right a lot and we are right a lot and we don't fail. We don't lose. And so to be surrounded by this new virus when you don't really understand it completely. And you, you know, patients show up with all these different presentations and you don't realize it's the same thing or it keeps, it acts different ways in different people. And also it kills people. And so, you know, you go from 
hardly ever having people, you know, dying on you to people dying all around you. And it, the sense of failure and the sense of impotence um, is really going to be crippling for people who honestly just aren't used to it. You know, they're not used to their patients dying. They're not used to being on the losing end. And and, and it seems like that there's a, a corollary with that to the degrees to which people are self-medicating, right, with some of the exact right. substances you've talked about. Exactly. I'd love to uh, just dig in a little on the, um, you know, you mentioned climate change um, and, and what's going on there, and you have uh, an entire chapter on, on in the new book on connecting to the earth. Yeah. And there are a couple of terms in there uh, that really struck me, one being ecocide yeah. for, for what we're doing right. to the planet. Yeah. Um, and the other being biophilia, our, our innate draw towards nature. Right. These two polar, seemingly oppositional instincts. Right. How do we reconcile those and how can they relate to these other modes of connection that you get into? Yeah, it is hard to reconcile, uh, you know, why are we killing the planet if we love nature so much? And why, you know, why are we killing the thing that, that uh, like, why are we biting the hand that feeds, right? Mm -hmm. And it's hard for us to, to hold those two things. And so it's easier for us to, to sort of separate out and be like, look, I am, I am an eco-activist and I am somebody who loves the earth and I am not, you know, I'm not committing ecocide. It's other people who are doing that. And, and to sort of, uh, you know, we do this all the time. We create these others and, you know, we divide the world into us and them. So, you know, one of the things that psychedelics can help with is, is allowing you to hold two diametrically op opposing ideas in, t in one space or to just um, sort of accept that, it, you know, nothing is really either or, that everything is, you know, both and more, um, that, you know, any, any real duality is probably uh, sort of false and there's, there's something bigger that is holding, you know, both of those things. The, one of the, you know, one of the things I write about with talking about psychedelics is that they can help us feel more responsible for the planet, not only feel more connected, but feel like we have to do something. And there are really interesting studies showing that people who've taken psilocybin mushrooms, which are magic mushrooms, um, that they score higher on, on these traits of uh, eco-consciousness um, and environmental activism. As a psychologist and, and someone who's specializing in psychopharmacology, the brain is sometimes called the last frontier, and we have medications that work, but we also have some that don't seem to work, and we don't always know why. You know, what's your relationship um, to the unknown, and what helps guide you through uncharted territory? Uh, what sort of practices or systems or images do you work with to, to confront the unknown? I prioritize sleep. I get a ton of sleep. I drink a lot of water. I try to be in nature. I. I feel like music really, really soothes me. And if I can play guitar for 10 minutes or sing for 10 minutes, um, it, I can feel it sort of physically changing my body. I also like to avail myself of babies and little children when I can. <laughs> like, uh, um, I, I, I can physically feel like some sort of oxytocin rush if I, if I hold a baby or I'm sort of, you know, watching a toddler or something like that, so. Uh, so it sounds like real just groundedness and, and 
turning on that parasympathetic system, and that helps you confront the unknown. Yeah, so, and you know, the easiest way to get into parasympathetic is really just breathe through your nose. And if you are freaking out, if you block your right nostril and you breathe in and out through your left nostril, it can, it can calm you down and soothe you. Uh, even more acutely than just breathing in and out through your nose. I'm just realizing, um, do you think that's when people are like struck or shocked by something, they cover their mouths? Do you think that's right, like subconsciously, they, that's okay, okay right, you should breathe, breathe through, through the nose, nose now. now. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good idea. When, you know, when people get anxious and upset, one of the first things they do is they stop breathing or they'll breathe very like shallowly. And when, when the brain senses that the, your bloodstream has got a lower oxygen level, the first thing it does is panic. So you end up sort of creating the circle where if you're a shallow breather, you're more likely to panic. And if you panic, you're more likely to breathe through your mouth. And so you have to stop that cycle. And so breathing through your nose is just the easiest way to sort of stop the cycle and get over into parasympathetic. You know, I think there's there's a lot of folks who had types of experiences where you know they they've they've had a psychedelic experience, they've they've they made some connection, found some creative pursuit that then energized them uh, for, for a very long time after the experience ended, years even. Um, and and I think you know your work. You even mentioned the the word awe earlier. Yeah. Um, those those moments when you do find that sense of awe and wonder, they stick with you, right? They've got this sort of like lasting power of connection. I, I know I had heard a talk by the folks who put on Cirque du Soleil. They worked with a neuroscientist to study some of this and found that even seeing a remarkable, you know, performance uh, that that it inspires awe and wonder can have some of these same um, neurological effects. So I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, if if, if we can't go to Vegas and see O and then go <laughs> right. take some Molly upstairs in the hotel room, as much as I would love for us all to be able to go do that. What are some of the other ways that, that we can start to think about getting those moments of awe and right. wonder in our lives? So uh, the thing about awe and wonder is they're both like exquisitely opened states where you are absolutely in parasympathetic, you may be in flow, but you're, you're also primed for new information. So you're open to learning. And, it's, and they're also like exquisite states of neuroplasticity. So you can actually rewire the brain in these states. So awe is a really great medicine. And um, you can get it uh, from nature, certainly. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't have to be the Grand Canyon. You can, you can you know, look up close, you know, in a macro lens um, at anything and be in awe uh, of, you know, the intricacies of, of the natural world. But I also think that you can be in awe, you know, at, at like how uh, two bunnies can play together or a child can, you know, learn how to roll over on their on their blanket. I mean, they're, I have a pretty loose interpretation, I think, for what what puts you in that place. And it's just it's a state of openness. You're open to learning and you are there's something, you know, that's not you, that's bigger than you, that that puts you in a state of wonder. So, death. Yes, uh, death. So death. Um, Let's. You know, we talked. Brain. Brain is sort of the. Uh, yeah, brain is sort of a final frontier. And clearly, at least for this physical plane of this particular manifestation, walking around in this particular flesh bag, um, <laughs> you know, death is the is the final frontier. <laughs> for um, sure. And yeah. you know, in your book, you talk on you touch on work that Catherine McLean, our mutual friend, K Mac, yeah, um, is doing. 
How can psychedelics change our relationship individually or culturally to death? Yeah, so uh, they absolutely can. Um, I, I wanted to give Catherine McLean sort of the last word in the book because she is the one who's, who sort of for the longest time has been talking about using psychedelics um, as what she calls death practice. Um, that because they quiet the mm. default mode network and because you can get this sense that, you, that you're not important or you're insignificant or maybe even you don't exist anymore, right? Like in, in a really intense psychedelic experience, you will lose your sense of self. You will have what's called ego disintegration. Um, and that is like the ultimate quieting of the default mode network where you sort of cease to exist and you, you become one with the cosmos, right? You, it's not just that everything is connected, but that you're part of that everything. Um, and you, you, lose your, you lose your small sort of sense of self and you connect to something much bigger than you. Psychedelics can engender this, this sense of awe and they can engender this ego disintegration, which is in some ways like death practice. You know, like you, if you take enough uh, uh, LSD or, or psilocybin or ayahuasca, you, it's very possible that you will have a sense that, of no longer existing. And sometimes that's terrifying. And other times it, it uh, is accompanied by a tremendous sense of bliss. Mm. Um, so the classic mystical experience is that you actually have both, that you go through the void and into the light so that you have this sense of nothingness, but then on the other side of the void, there is this light, and it is sort of the opposite of a sense of nothingness. It is a sense of everythingness. Um, so there are clinical studies that are uh, using research subjects who are um, very physically sick, who have got cancer, who've got end-stage cancer, where they are going to die, where they, they know that it is inevitable, and they're, and they're giving these patients these terminal patients, um, very uh, kind of high-dose psilocybin mystical experiences. And then they're measuring afterwards to see how their anxiety is, how their pain is, how their quality of life is. And what they showed was that people who had very intense mystical experiences uh, would take fewer pain medicines, uh, had less depression, less anxiety. They felt sort of more... Uh, accepting of what their ultimate fate would be, which is what all of our ultimate fates are. You know, I think we do a lot of denial of death in our culture and, and you know, denial of aging is sort of like it's, it's step-sibling. Um, and in, in the United yeah. States, in our culture, we, we don't... Uh, we don't talk very much about death and we don't really, uh, we, you know, if we, if we go to a funeral, the body has been like embalmed and, you know, like with makeup and hair and, you know, they look better than they've ever looked before. And, you know, we don't, we don't really see what death looks like up close. And we, we have a lot of denial um, and distancing in our culture around death. And in, in other cultures, they don't. In other cultures, it's more sort of integrated uh, that you see people die, that you, you know, that you... You, you, it, it doesn't get sort of uh, sterilized. Yeah, I mean, we've totally forgotten how to die well and, and, that, yeah. and that idea. And I feel yeah. like there's a, a resurgence of remembering how to be born. You know, there's more old For practices sure. coming back with midwives and, Definitely. and doulas. And now right. there's just beginning this idea of a death doula. Right, there and needs to be a death doula. Rebuilding 
mature cultures around death. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that I, I hope that I wrote about this in Moody Bitches because I certainly meant to. It's this idea that like um, the practice of medicine, they really have like a blind spot. You know, we're very good at ushering in babies and we've got NICUs and, and midwives and doulas and we're very good at, at uh, ushering in new lives and we're terrible at ushering out people when they're done. Doctors aren't good at, at giving people yeah. good death so we don't know how to ask for a good death a lot of people you know die in a hospital you know surrounded by tubes instead of at home with their loved ones and what's happening now with the pandemic is that people are dying alone in the hospital because there's no visiting at all yeah and i'm wondering how much that's also tied to what you were saying before about physicians not wanting to fail right if your whole definition exactly. is just keep the patient alive for sure then it's got to be tied to a sense of failure if you let someone die i totally agree that part of the part of the blind spot is that the doctors have trouble knowing when to stop and you know we all need to stop talking about you know lifespan and start talking about health span mm. you know and that it's it really is about quality of life and health and it's not about how old you know what the what the number is it's about quality of life yeah, and and so the idea of, of this <clears throat> maturing with with practices and cultures around 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 death and maybe in other ways, you know, what does it look like? So, ten years from now, twenty years from now, in your ideal sort of future, you know, as a society, and we cultiv- to, to cultivate connection, and how can we use these these plant based medicines a- in a more normalized and, and mature way? What does that look like? So, I think. The, you know, the first thing I would probably talk about in terms of the future is what's going to happen with psychedelics and whether they're going to be decriminalized or whether they're going to be commercialized or whether they're going to be medicalized. Um, and there are, you know, pluses and minuses to each uh, avenue. But it, it seems clear that um, they, will, they will become more available. You know, there's, there's more and more research happening um, all over the world now with psychedelic medicines and plant medicines. So there's there's Center for Psychedelic Studies and clinical research that's popping up. So we already there already is a center at, at Johns Hopkins and at NYU um, and Imperial College in London, and they're setting up a, a trauma study center at Mount Sinai, and they're planning on setting up a psychedelic research center at Columbia, New York City. So so there is a there is a group of people all over the United States right now um, called Decriminalized Nature. And there have been several sort of local initiatives in, um, in Denver, in Oakland, California, in Santa Cruz, California, um, and in Chicago, which was pretty bizarre. I was surprised to see that. But the, but, and uh, now there's a, there's a push in D.C. also, uh, Decriminalized Nature. Um, to get plant medicines decriminalized. So as opposed to you having to go to a physician, you know, and having like a medically assisted psychedelic experience that you could just um, not get arrested for having one on your own. So I think um, that is something that's probably going to change is just the whole legal status of of psychedelics in the same way that we saw um, medical cannabis and then eventually, you know, adult legalization cannabis. I think you'll see sort of the medicalization of psychedelics and then you'll see the the adult use and, and decriminalization of psychedelics. So that's something interesting to look forward to. And I, I think that MDMA will end up being a prescription medicine. You know, we are going through all the motions of, of it becoming like an FDA approved medication. Um, and all the, all the data looks really good. So I think that that will probably happen in the next uh, few years. Um, 
So I think we're I think we're entering an age where there's going to be a lot of research on psychedelics. So I mean, how, how does so that's a clinical side of things and and sound a little more individualistic. And then you know, happening now, there's you know all these retreat centers. Right. Some of them are legal in Europe. Some of them you know are under uh, religious protection. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., some are just uh, a lot is just happening underground. Someone's happening informally with friends. You know, right. how do those worlds converge or, or, or do they? Um... I, will, I will tell you that there is a lot of talk about this. Uh, you know, within the psychedelic community, this is a concept that keeps coming up over and over is uh, people are worried about it being becoming too commercialized or there being issues of like intellectual property and patents and, you know, anti-competitive practices. There are some for-profit companies that are designing uh, psychedelics to be used medically. There are some not-for-profit companies, and then there are some public benefit companies. Um, and, then, and then there are just, you know, the decriminalized people who, who don't think that it needs to be sort of medically supervised and that the, these are basically uh, physiologically non-toxic medicines. You know, there, there's a, something called behavioral toxicity, though, right? Okay, so, yes, a bunch of mushrooms are not going to kill you. LSD is not really going to hurt you physically. But if you're so entranced by how beautiful the red and, and yellow and green lights are that you don't realize you're supposed to stop and not cross the street, that's behavioral toxicity, right? So psychedelics, even though they're sort of physiologically pretty non-toxic, they still really have to be done in, this, uh, in a setting that is safe um, and with a person's emotional set that is safe. So set and setting matter tremendously. Um, with psychedelics. And, I, you know, I talk in good chemistry about, you know, what, what makes things more or less safe. So one of the things that uh, we wanted to make sure we asked you was a segment we like to call Far Afield. Um, so we wanted to ask you to think for a moment about something that maybe isn't uh, at all related to your work. It could be a, a hobby, a passion you have, uh, a secret obsession, or a recent Wikipedia death spiral you've gone on. Uh, and, and talk to us a little bit about something that seems just left field from what we've been talking about so far, but that is a, a passion or an interest of yours. Well, I would have to say that that would be music. Um, my husband Jeremy and I both um, are musicians and our children are musically talented. And um, when they were younger, we had a family band called Family Mojo because our kids are named Molly and Joe. Um, and then as the kids got older, of course, they uh, became mortified that they were in a family band and no longer really wanted to cooperate. <laughs> and so then, then Jeremy and I just decided to be a band on our own and we called ourselves The Rivals. Um, since the quarantine happened and the kids are now home with us, you know, Molly's home from college and Joe is stuck home, not going to high school. So we, we had sort of like a forced reunion tour for Family Mojo. Um, and we promised hmm. ourselves that uh, we would play a song a day. I think today is like day 52 or 53 or something. And so every, every day we get together and we, we record a song and then we post it on Facebook. So that we are sort of oh, that's great. Uh, so so that's this is—it's like a little bit of a of a disciplined <laughs> practice where we have all sort of agreed that we're going to do this. I'm I care deeply about music. It it uh, it really you know nourishes me and uh, playing with the kids. You know, singing harmony with 
my daughter and my husband and having my son play drums. Um, that's been sort of an important side project uh, these past couple of months. You know, we're in between a little bit, winter and, and spring. So I'll ask first, you know, a winter question, which is, you know, what are you incubating or have you been incubating um, and sort of letting gestate and, 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 and letting hunker down, you know, before all of this, over the winter? I mean, clearly you have a book that's about to come out and that's, yeah. that's there's that, but... Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to even think of anything else because, you know, it's just been like three or four years of really thinking about about the science of connection and oxytocin and all this stuff. Um, so that that is what was incubating in the winter. Um, but I'm, I love spring. I'm a big fan of spring. Our wedding anniversary is in spring and we met in the spring. And um, I just, I love, for, I mean, first of all, for, as a psychiatrist, I will tell you that I, I refer to this time of year as mania season because right around like Passover, Easter, clock's changing. Um, my patients who are bipolar will sometimes have a little bit of an uptick in, in their mood and they get a little bit revved up and we have to like increase the lithium a little bit. And in the winter, certainly more people get depressed. So I, I find that um, the seasons really affect people's moods. What, what's, uh, what's blossoming right now for you or at least little buds and shoots coming up uh, this spring for you? I don't know. I'm just, you know, because we are sort of holed up here and not going anywhere, um, I'm just kind of uh, being, a, being a mom and being a family and, and, you know, staying around the house. And I'm, I know we're looking forward to maybe clearing some more trails out in the woods. Um, once it gets warmer, you'll we'll probably go out more on the lake. I like to stand up paddle on the lake. Um, so the book comes out in June? It comes June. out June 16th. Yeah. June 16th. And available at all your major... Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been encouraging people to try to use independent booksellers as much as possible. I mean, I don't, you know, Amazon's not going anywhere. Obviously, they got plenty of business. But I think I think if you can get a book from another source, that might be a nice thing to do. Where else can people find out uh, information about you and your work? Um, so I, I have a bunch of websites that all take you to the same place, like if like moodybitches.com, thepotbook.com, drholland.com, weekendsatbellevue.com. They all take you to the same to the same. We all end up website. in the same place anyway, if you, right? If Isn't you that just, the point? Like, exactly. <laughs> right. All roads lead to me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to talk and, and be out here in the woods and sitting on rocks. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm enjoying these moss-covered rocks, too. In the wild. It's a good idea. Would you be up for singing with me for a minute, just trying it? All right, I'll try it. We can do it this twice. This is very unrehearsed. Totally unrehearsed. <laughs> <clears throat> and I'm just going to kind of follow your lead. Okay. okay. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. I worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? Yeah. <laughs> I feel some oxytocin. Do you get a little bit of that? I got a little oxy. You get a little oxy. <laughs> a good oxy, not the bad oxy. Yeah. 
Julie, this was wonderful. I wish I could have been there with you guys, hanging out and chatting and, and talking. I'm so fascinated by this work and really, really excited for the book. Thank you. Perhaps another time we will do it in person. 